welcome Gary Duno, pronounced it correctly, Associate Director at the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency. Uh, I think we've had to reschedule a couple times, but that's all right, and we move, and now we're here. Welcome. Yeah, thanks, Eric. I'm happy to be here, and sorry for having to reschedule, but, you know, operations and other things happen. So. Oh, of course. If uh, if everyone apologized for rescheduling, we would just spend all our time rescheduling, I, I feel like. Um so for the for the people listening, right, your associate director at, at NGA, um, I have a vague idea of what that is, but the people listening who never considered applying to NGA have less than an idea uh, than I do. So can you go ahead and sort of introduce introduce yourself and kind of what the what the role entails? Yeah, sorry for the beep in the background there. All good. Um, yeah, so. Uh, I've worked at the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency since about 2002, so uh, going on 20 years now. Um, it is one of the uh, lesser-known intelligence agencies. You know, um, everybody knows CIA and NSA and DIA because they all have movies. We're working on a movie. Eventually, we'll get there someday. Um, there's a bad one out there, Enemy of the State, that uh, some people refer to us not even close to what we do. So if you've watched that and you think that's NGA, it's not. Um, our job is, so our, 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 uh, the way we describe ourselves is to know the earth, understand the world and show the way. And our primary missions are number one, uh, safety of navigation for department of defense, uh, aircraft, ships, uh, land vehicles, et cetera. So we, we make maps. Uh, that help uh, the Army, the Marines, uh, the Navy, the Coast Guard, and the Air Force get from point A to point B safely and accurately. Um, and then along with that same function, you know, we work uh, on um, geographic information systems to try to help weapon systems hit a target as accurately as possible as well. So safety of navigation for people's sake and also to prosecute um, in wartime, uh, drop in weapons when we need to and try to limit collateral damage and, uh, and hit the objective. The other thing we do, we are an intelligence agency. So we do collect intelligence via spaceborne or airborne uh, assets with cameras on them, taking pictures of the earth. Um, there's a lot of commercial industry that does that now, um, and they do it really well. Um, and it's a really highly proliferating industry with a lot of different companies stepping into that arena, uh, and they're growing uh, pretty quickly. So uh, we are generally ahead of the commercial companies, and you know we like to think we're the best in the world at what we do, and I think we are. It's a great place to work. It's a great mission. A lot of great people who who have just thousand pound brains and way smarter than me, but I'm really lucky to get to work there with them. Sounds like everything I had dreamed of when I was doing my GIS certificate. <laughs> um, so Not too late, Eric. Maybe, maybe one day I'll get over there. Maybe one day. Yeah. Um, so we were just talking before before we were recording, and and this is partially my curiosity, but just for how the before we get into sort of your career path as as a Russian interpreter, which is how I figured that this would be a good time given the relevance, but um, the intelligence agencies, I think a lot of people hear about them in movies, news, et cetera, and have a very, or not very, but somewhat misconstrued sort of idea of what actually goes on, right? They see James Bond jumping out of a helicopter or, or something of the sort, and so what, what is, well, one, I guess I would assume that you guys would, would work with the other intelligence agencies, but how does that sort of relationship work with um, like the policymakers? So like from the, what little I know is like you guys will gather information and then give it to them and then they make the decisions. But can you go into like a little bit of, I guess, kind of expand on that a little bit? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, for folks who don't know, there, there are 17 uh, organizations in the intelligence community. NGA is one of them. Uh, we all work under the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. Um, and on the, the Department of Defense side, we all work under the um, United States Secretary of Defense, Under Secretary of Defense for Intelligence and Security. 
Um, and so we have at NGA and in some of the other agencies, we have two bosses that we report to, but um, they set the priorities for us and they uh, determine what missions we work on and based, based on the resources that the American taxpayers trust us with. Um, and we use those resources, whether it's people or uh, IT and other capabilities, uh, to collect as much information as possible about um, national security uh, objectives around the world. Um, and so uh, what we do is we try to work as a community in each of our specific disciplines. Um, so in intelligence, there are the disciplines of, of GEOINT, geospatial intelligence, which is what we do. SIGINT, which is what NSA does, uh, HUMINT, which is a, what a couple of other different agencies do, open source intelligence, uh, measurement and signals intelligence. There are a lot of different disciplines out there. And so, as you can imagine, uh, it'd be hard to be good at all of those. So you need specialists in all of those. So that's how the, the kind of, we kind of organize as a community. And then we each get after it really hard in our specific discipline with the technical expertise that uh, we apply. And then a lot of that is put together by all source intelligence analysts who take the different pieces of the puzzle and, and look at it and try to make a sense out of it all collectively. And we together uh, try to inform policymakers uh, and other decision makers, our warfighters, commanders, et cetera, uh, with all the information we can uh, to allow them to make a good decision. Um, we, we characterize that data, that information based on the quality of the information, how confident we are in the information because different sources and methods have different reliability and uh, validity and veracity. And then um, they, you know, if they need to make a decision uh, at a certain point, they make it based on all the information we've provided. And we're constantly adding to that information um, to try to help them make the best decision possible. And we constantly uh, remind ourselves uh, that, you know, we're an apolitical function within the government. So it's not our job to support one party or another's agenda. It's our job to find the truth as we can, as best we can, and give that truth to the policymakers, and then they make a decision from there. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think... I think there's there's a fair amount of people, um, whether it's in like some like on the well, <laughs> on the internet, we'll say alternative, like not the the main networks that have a level of skepticism um, when it comes to the intelligence community, and I, and personally, when I hear that, it kind of it annoys me from one respect, but also what the the arguments hold some water for me as well in terms of. Like, okay, are we going to send our troops over to XYZ country and for what most, I'll say, regular people is the middle of nowhere? Um, with that said, can you, and, and also, and we talked about this beforehand, but since the information for why to go um, often is not available for sources and methods, means, classifications, et cetera, and the information for why not to go seems to be very more readily available. There's, it seems to sway public opinion a, a little bit on that. Um, can you sort of touch on how you guys deal with that, uh, I guess, internally, but also when you're briefing uh, whoever, um, kind of how that, if, that's a, if that plays a mind, like a role in how you guys brief or, or not, or if how, like, how you deal with that personally as well. I know there's a lot in there, but generally, hopefully that makes sense. Yeah, no, sure. Um, so uh, being prior military and, um, you know, in many of the intel agencies, they have active duty guards, reservists, and, and uh, either retired or prior military people serving in a lot of their positions. So there are a lot of us who, uh, by the very nature of the fact that we've served in uniform, take very seriously uh, providing accurate information to the people who would make a decision to put uh, our nation's most precious resource in harm's way, right? And I can tell you that those decision makers, uh, especially the uh, senior officers in uniform, understand that um, we all look at, um, at combat operations as a least resort. Uh, we always try to find a different way to resolve things. Um, 
And so um, when we're uh, gathering the information uh, that might be used for that kind of decision, um, I wouldn't say we treat it any differently than any other, any other information. As I mentioned earlier, you know, we're always trying to find the truth and get uh, as much information, reliable information, and put it together in a way that makes as much sense as possible to make the right decision. Um, so I think, um, you know, I, I would I would just say that, um, like any any issue we look at, we don't we don't take that lightly, and and we want to make sure that we're providing the best information possible. I personally, you asked how I personally deal with that, you know, because of my background. Um, you know, I, I try to be super diligent and, and make sure that uh, we're doing everything we can uh, and looking at every source possible uh, to make sure that we're providing that information. So, Yeah. And, and again, that's the reason why it annoys me when I hear it is because I, I know that so many of the people that are in those fields are former active duty or have a strong ties to like, it's not those decisions or not decisions, but the they the information is gathered with the utmost like care and yeah. and diligence, and so that for me again when I hear it, it's like, well, do you know anybody who's doing that? It's like, well, no. It's like, well, maybe it, it's a weird one because you see the people in in there, like the individuals in there, like yourself, and you're like, yes, they care the utmost, and then you kind of look like at a decision that maybe was made which you guys didn't make you guys provided the information for but a decision that was made and you're like that doesn't make sense like they, the two don't mesh you know yeah i think you know uh you talked a little bit in the original question about misinformation or or a lot of information that's out there right of different mm-hmm. information and so there is uh we live in a world of misinformation and disinformation and uh, cyber attacks and, and other things and so um and a proliferation of information like it's never happened before and it's only going to continue to increase right so i think in the past um our community and national security in general uh, was able to sort of rely on the fact that the nation trusted us because there was no alternative being put forward in front of them right and there are a lot of alternatives being put forth now Mm-hmm. And so that's a problem uh, uh, that we in the intelligence community have to deal with because um, people are forming opinions based on what they have access to. We're not able to refute them with a lot of the information we have because we have to protect sources and methods. But I think there's a there's a way to find a middle ground between that information that everyone has access to and what we're able to talk about without um, revealing sources and methods that allows us to continue to build trust with uh, the American public so that they they can rely on us and not question the advice we're giving or the decisions we're making based on that advice. Yeah, I was I was about to get to that middle ground question. That was that was where I was going next is I would some level of transparency is good to build trust generally just like as a whether it's you guys or any institution some level of transparency is, is helpful with trust but at the same time with the sensitive nature of what you guys are are doing it makes it very difficult to to give that level of transparency and so it 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 is almost by default leads to distrust which like you were saying and in, in where we are now with the amount of information whether it's true or not that's available makes it very difficult for for people to like especially like myself who wants to be informed to sift through like okay this seems reasonable this is clearly not like it's very difficult and then you want to go look at like okay this person said that but that person said this and then it's a whole and then you're just like okay well is anybody telling the truth then then you go down the whole rabbit hole and then you're screwed really at that point yeah and it doesn't help that, um, uh, frankly, the intelligence community, uh, according to the public opinion, has gotten things wrong in the recent past. Um, and and so there's a trust deficit there. But recent leadership in the intelligence community, including, including and especially the current leadership, is really committed to uh, increased transparency to help build that trust. So I think what you're seeing play out 
in the current situation, which I can't talk much about, as I mentioned, but I think what everybody has seen is um, a lot of information being put out in the public uh, by uh, the government and the Defense Department from the intelligence community uh, that has shown, you know, that what is going to happen and that, that it did happen. And uh, to me, that's that's a critical role for us because, um, you know, I don't know if you've read, uh, there's a, a book, The New Rules of War by Sean McFate. And he talks about uh, how war is never going to look like uh, World War II again, even though that's kind of the way we prepare and plan to operate going forward. But it's really uh, his, I think I'd describe his, his narrative as uh, we're never, we're no longer in a state of peace. We're constantly at some kind of war, whether it's information warfare, cyber warfare, economic warfare, whatever it may be. Um, and so we should be treating how we approach war differently. And I think in the case of information warfare, we've done that in this most recent activity. And, and I think it's proven to be successful and also hopefully uh, will uh, be a step in the right direction for building trust with the American public yeah. and the global, the global public, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think, I mean, everything that about treating war differently is is true in my opinion anyways that i would i'll ask this there's one more question and we'll kind of veer back on course um a little bit but when when we say that we're always in some sort of state of war to me that seems accurate currently um a lot of like people i know friends i have would say well why can't like the, why can't we all just get along um and i know and this goes back to what i said earlier about the like i see both sides of the why would we send people there but also like i understand why we would send people there it's like i understand that it would be nice if we could all just get along but also other cultures don't necessarily think the same way that we do and so we're locked in this kind of like weird sort of um state where it seems like everybody wants peace but nobody believes that the other side wants peace if that makes sense is that is that fairly is that a fairly i would say not necessarily accurate but decent sort of summation of where we are yeah I, you know i won't say um we're always in a state of war is my perspective i'm not going to mm -hmm. agree disagree that that's what mcfate describes in his book sure and i think it's an it's, and it's an interesting concept to to have a good conversation around and and think about as we're approaching things like national security, economic security, climate security, all of that kind of stuff. Um, but I don't think it's it's so far off mark, right? I think um, uh, nations, uh, all nations have competing objectives, right? We're all mm -hmm. trying to, to get the most money we can for our economy. We're trying to protect or or you know get natural resources, trying to improve technology. And everybody's kind of in a race and all of this. So so maybe that's a different word, right? Is a race yeah. versus a war sometimes. But And then, of course, all leaders are people and all people are flawed, right? And Absolutely. They, they all come to it with their own perspective um, and, and challenges and, and positives. And so um, all of that comes into play uh, in different dynamics that cause conflict of some form or another, but, and it hasn't and won't always take uh, the form of uh, uh, combat operations, but that doesn't mean we're not in conflict, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's one of the things that this, these recent events has shown us, at least something that I've tried to do throughout as I've grown up is understand that like the decisions that are being made that might not make sense to me is because country a has a different objective than you might think and they might care about something that we don't care about and the person in charge of that might have differing priorities and all these things are like being here in the u.s like we don't really think about well i mean you might because you're in that world all the time but the like the regular people right and i think that the recent events have kind of given with this giant influx of information has come out i think people hopefully are starting to realize that a little bit more 
people are like, well, that doesn't make any sense. It's like, well, you think about what he might want and then you might be able to figure it out. And then like, I've seen some of that online. So maybe, I don't know. That's just kind of like, I've been musing about that in the last few days, but hopefully that's the case because I think maybe we could, as a public, be more, um, I don't know what the word I'm looking for is. You know what I mean though. Yeah, I think, um, you know, culturally we've shifted over uh, the last several decades from this concept of kind of trusting the, the people who have been put in authority and been given responsibilities like mine, right, where you, people don't know what I do, but, um, you know, kind of just as, assume uh, noble intent uh, mm-hmm. to, to, with all this information being put out that kind of contradicts uh, or, or, uh, potentially misinforms it creates more of a uh, environment of doubt rather than no, assuming noble intent and so i think it's just human nature now with all the information we have and it's it's hard to assume that noble intent plus yeah. some people have have um put that uh possibility at risk through their actions right mm-hmm. leaders in different nations and different yeah. positions yeah absolutely all right We'll head off the current event questions that might get us both in trouble. Well, mostly you. I think I'll be all right. But <laughs> Yeah, I know everybody jokes if I tell you that I have to kill you. It's not true. If I tell you that, I go to jail. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's not good either, really, is it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. So you talked a little bit about the um, – so I think maybe we'll go backwards in the career path. We'll start NGA, uh, and then we'll kind of go GIS, and then we'll kind of go to Air Force, and then – back into how you got to NGA, something like that. So you okay. talked a little bit about um, NGA and their responsibilities at, uh, at the beginning, but when, what sorts of, so obviously there's maps involved and different sort of like graphs and other stuff that is involved with GIS, but for those listening that have no idea like what GIS is or any, like, cause I can picture it all in my head, how it would look on a computer. But for those listening that have no idea, can you sort of describe like, um maybe like kind of a day in in your life and then generally like how that kind of filters out beyond you because you've got people under you that are doing the actual work and stuff or not the actual work you know what i mean yeah it's just different work right there's yeah, a different work management verse in mine yeah. yeah um yeah so in the position i'm in what i try to do is i try to bring um a bunch of different organizations together to work against problems in a more efficient and effective way. You know, we're all, um, we all have people that we're putting against problems and we're all spending money on different systems to try to get after those problems, whether it's the military services or NGA or other, you know, our international partners um, across the world. And so uh, what we try to do is make sure that um, we're not spending the same money on the same data or the same systems or the same problem. So part of my job is to kind of take a look across all of that and say, how can we work together more efficiently, effectively, and then drive policy changes or IT changes that help uh, make us um, uh, get get um, after a problem in a uh, different way. And as you can imagine, right, national security uh, for us means looking at international threats and problem problems. And there's more work than any organization can do by itself, even collectively. And so we're trying to get after as much of that as we can. So that's my day-to-day job is to try to help integrate uh, all of that activity um, to, to be the best it can be. Um, I've, uh, to be fair and to be honest and upfront, I've never been a GIS or, or GEOINT analyst. Um, in my Air Force career, there was a time where I was an all-source analyst. So as I described earlier, taking stuff from GEOINT and SIGINT and HUMAN and putting it all together. Um, but I've never done a GIS specifically myself. I've been around it now for 20 years, right? So, and I help uh, at different points in my career, I helped with things like planning the collection of uh, satellite and airborne capabilities to make sure we're getting the information we need uh, and work in, uh, in Iraq in a deployed environment to try to pull all the right information together uh, f- uh, for our analysts uh, to help um, our troops who were on the ground at the time uh, during Iraqi freedom. Um, but 
to kind of describe at a 101 level uh, what uh, GIS is or GeoInt is and what our folks do, um, they, they take all that information. So it can be anything from a satellite image to an air, aircraft image to uh, a collection of information uh, from a database about you know, where all the local hospitals are or whatever, right? And uh, what we try to do is visualize all that information. So rather than put, you know, 10,000 words in a document that somebody has to read through that takes them 20, 25 minutes, we'll try to put it all in a picture. Um, and so one, you know, uh, I would say PowerPoint slide, but I hate that reference, right? One, one product that looks like a PowerPoint slide with some images, some data, maybe taking that data and putting it into a, a Tableau or some sort of uh, a tool that takes the data, collates it and makes it easier to understand uh, and put those products in front of um, our customers in a way that helps them uh, see the picture, literally the picture more clearly and quickly so that they can make better decisions. And, uh, you know, my hat's off to all of our analysts and the analysts across the community because they're really uh, not only subject matter experts in a very technical discipline, um, in the case of our Intel analysts, that technical discipline is, is imagery intelligence and, and geospatial intelligence. For the folks who do our safety of navigation, we have folks who are photogrammetrists. So think, uh, you know, the ability from thousands of miles in space to make sure when you measure something on the ground, you're measuring it right. Um, mm -hmm. Pretty impressive technology to, you know, scientists who understand uh, the magnetism of the earth and how that affects uh, planes, trains, automobiles, and weapons, or the gravitational pull of the Earth, and how it affects all that, and how the Earth changes due to gravitational pull from the sun and things like that. Really crazy smart people, right? And then pulling all that information together to, to provide some really cool information to our customers. So for you personally, that's a lot of um, stuff to get your head wrapped around in a very, like, and because like the stuff that you mentioned is obviously related, but it's not it's not that related from the standpoint of like if you get one, you understand all of them. There's different subject sort of fields. Like when we were taking the GIS certificate, we would have we had specific class for the satellite imagery and stuff, and then we had specific class for like the analysis of the like the metadata within the maps, and then like they were all separate sort of things. And so for you not having that the that specific background was it difficult for you to kind of wrap your head around all that stuff i wouldn't say i've wrapped my head around it it's uh as you mentioned it's a lot and um so the i've just been very lucky to to have been in jobs uh where um i didn't need to know all of that um i needed i guess that's the thing about leadership right uh, you can put technical experts in leadership positions. And in some cases, you, you need real technical experts. Mm -hmm. But you also need folks who um, can kind of see the big picture and pull everything together and who also, um, you know, are committed to taking care of the folks who work under them and trusting them and, and making sure they know they're trusted and getting them the resources they need to do their job. And so I've always been, I'd say since I was a Russian interpreter, I've never been a technical expert on anything mm -hmm. other than other than perhaps leadership, which is something we're constantly learning about no matter how far we are into our careers. And so I've always taken the approach of, um, I wanna take care of people so that they can take care of the mission. And so that I, I never try to, um, I try to learn the job as much as I can and understand it so I can make smart decisions. But I never try to become the technical expert because um, that would take distract me from uh, taking care of the folks that we have. And I, I think it would also, in some cases, create an environment where they think I'm I'm starting to create um, sort of a situation where I can question what they do. And I never want to do that. So. Yeah, that, that makes total sense as well. I think that's sort of the the world that I'm I've been in at the moment I work with a lot of software developers and I don't know how to code at all I know enough to understand what they're saying I know some basic like python some other stuff but like it's that's sort of the the world that I found myself in where 
I tell them often, like, tell me what you need and I'll try and get it for you. Um, and that's sort of, I also enjoy that type of role because it allows me to be curious about different things. And also it's kind of um, a way to experience different sort of projects and things. And cause you don't need, you're not siloed into one, one specific thing. Have you found that as well in, in your career? Like kind of, you've been able to bounce around different projects and learn, learn cool things. Absolutely. And I've worked everything from policy to, uh, to analysis, to collections. Uh, and what's really interesting is um, when you get that sort of breadth of experience, um, it allows you to see, uh, like I mentioned earlier, the big picture and how things can work together and should work together, um, which a lot of the folks who are doing the, the really high skill technical stuff, they like what they're doing, right? And they don't want to have to be bothered with all of that, you know, Oh, for it's, sure. They hate it. They're like, just leave me in my office by myself and let me invent stuff. It's like, all right. Sounds yeah. good. And, and we want them to do that, right? Yeah. Because they're so good at it. And they're, they're going to come up with stuff I never thought of. But at the same time, you need someone to put all that stuff together. Yeah, no, absolutely. There's a couple of guys at, at, uh, at my company that are like that, where they've been promoted into like director positions, but they have no personnel under them. It's just like, so they could get paid more to keep inventing things it's like uh, i mean fair enough man you, you do yeah. that it's like couldn't be me couldn't be me at all yeah. <laughs> um, and I, I think ideally right if you have a leadership team um like most of our our organizations have two people in charge of them a director mm -hmm. and a deputy or something like that ideally you want someone who's got technical chops and someone who's got leadership and management chops and they then they complement each other and it works well for everybody yeah yeah i mean in an ideal world that would that would yeah. be the case wouldn't it yeah. um just out of personal curiosity because i've experienced this slightly just with um when i try to look at big picture and i see like how something could work like for like with a soccer club for example or something like that and it's not working like that does that you ever get that and you're like, why are they just not doing that one thing that seems so obvious to me? Yeah, all the time. Uh, and, and so, I mean, that's part of why I've, I've um, applied for a lot of the jobs I've applied for, because, you know, you see that something is obvious to you, but uh, it's not being acted on. And so somebody's got to step out there and try to drive it in that direction. Um, and um I don't think it's, I don't think it's due to uh, malicious intent or, or neglect yeah. or anything. It's just people get focused on their job and, you know, it's hard for them to lift their heads up sometime to, to understand that bigger picture. And plus also, you know, people do things a certain way for over a certain period of time and then they don't question it anymore. Yeah. I experienced that in, um, I was working for Fairfax County, the, the public works department, and I went in to help them like reroute all their trash routes because they have a fleet of trash trucks. And some of the drivers that had been there for like 20, 25 years were like, get the map kit out of here. We've, we've always done it this way. We don't want to change. Even though the routes were like, they had one truck here, a different truck here, and then the same truck over there. And it would cross and it would be like, why would you not just use the one? It's like, yeah. <laughs> it's like, it was like, what a concept. But they were like, well, we've always done it that way. It's like, all right, dude. It's like, don't, don't tell me that. Tell your, tell your boss that. Yeah. It's kind of like Moneyball, right? I mean, when you start looking at data and, and there's all kinds of books, right? About uh, gut instinct versus using data to make decisions and mm -hmm. how gut, gut instinct is, is almost always wrong, but that's, <laughs> that's human nature too, right? Cause, cause mm -hmm. you, you know, in, innately we think we're really good decision makers based on what we know, mm -hmm. but you know, oftentimes the data proves that wrong. Yeah. When, throughout your career, learning, having been in the management and like leadership sort of realm, how have you, how have you, so obviously you would have to adjust going from program to program or project to project, but what's sort of been the, like when you go into a new role or a new project or a new program, you have to learn the, like the new people and how they go about doing things. And it might even be in the same organization, but they have a different style of doing something. Like one team might 
do daily standups and another team might not want that. How do you sort of navigate that as you like go into a new project or program? So I think it's really important when you first come in, uh, you know, not coming in and try to make your mark right away and make a bunch of changes. Um, I think you need to take a certain amount of time. There's no like specific, I think, um, ideal amount of time, but, you know, a couple of months up to six months to kind of just see how things are working and inventory things and take some time to get to know, depending on the size of the organization, to sit down with all the people in the organization and talk to them and get their thoughts about what's good, what's bad. I think when you do that, you'll find sometimes that's the first time anyone's asked their opinion, right, and actually listened to them. And, and um, so that's a good exercise to build trust. Um, and I think also not making changes in the first couple, you know, a few months uh, lets folks know that you, you value what they do and you don't think you're smarter than they are without mm -hmm. taking the time to get to know the mission uh, as well as the people. And so I think it's, it's really important to just kind of demonstrate that you're interested in learning, you're curious, you don't think you know everything, right? And, and, and then take some time to assess and, and communicate. I, you know, I can't stress enough the importance of communication and erring on the side of over-communication. I don't know how many times I've seen in organizations where people either assume everybody knows something and doesn't uh, communicate it, and then that's that's got a bad outcome. Or especially senior leaders who say, well, you know, Joe Snuffy doesn't care about this, so why would I... Why would I tell them about this? And you know, when when I've pushed on that, and others have pushed on that, and we talk about strategic things with the entire collective, it makes a difference in how they approach their day to day job because they understand the bigger picture. Yeah, there's more investment from one, once they understand this. I've I've always wondered why, like, whenever you go to, like like a leadership video on YouTube or whatever, or some sort of class is like what you've said is always kind of the general points of this. These are probably good ideas. And so I tried to implement that as well, but I often wonder by why, and I don't, if you don't know the answer to this, cause I don't know either, but I, I, I often wonder like where, like where that goes wrong, not that specifically what you said, but why people don't do that because it's like that sort of information or approach seems to be very available if you like for like manager training or like all these things like my company has manager training and, and those sorts of things where they talk about it but it still seems to get lost in the shuffle somewhere I don't know if it's pressure of a new position or I don't I don't really know what it is but yeah I think I mean those books exist because uh we don't have all perfect leaders, right? So yeah, yeah. people need that information. Some of it's inexperience, um, right? And uh, so I think, I think that's useful. I read a lot of those books. Um, and, and like you said, most of what's in those books just seems natural or common sense. Well, not, think, even, not even that. It's just they're there, but like people don't do them. Like you yeah. can read them and like, then it's like, okay, well, is there but you didn't do it and now people are frustrated it's like you know like there's this whole like weird like cycle that goes on where people are like oh it seems natural so i'm not going to read it and then they don't do it and then it's frustrated and then it's like they should have read it but then like so i think that gets at uh, what i think is one of the most important leadership characteristics which is humility right so i i read a lot of those books even though i have you know 35 plus years of leading people um, uh, because I, I just feel like I need a reminder every once in a while, right? And, mm -hmm. and even though most of those books have stuff that I know, there's always something I didn't know or something I just needed to be reminded of because due to whatever reason I've, the situation I'm in or, or whatever, I've forgotten and I need to re, you know, bring that back into my toolkit. Um, but I also think people don't, implement a lot of those tools because they don't have humility, right? They don't want to look stupid. And mm -hmm. so when you ask questions and you're curious, some people think that makes them look stupid. When you're, when you're, you know, communicating, over-communicating, some people think, some, think 
it makes them look stupid. They want to hoard information because then, then they're important, right? Mm-hmm. And so I honestly think humility is is probably the most important leadership quality because once you realize you're not all that, right? And and you you're not always the smartest person in the room. In fact, you're rarely ever the smartest person in the room. Then you start uh, leveraging your team for the for the best outcomes because you're not sitting there just dictating everything. You're you're listening to all voices, all perspectives, and getting a lot of different input that then you put together to be much better than the individual parts. Yeah, it adds a level of um, like a gen- like a feeling of genuinity from the people that you're leading or managing, I think that humility quality as well. It's also one of the, one of the reasons why I enjoy the podcast so much is because I just get to sit there and listen to cool people talk about what they do. Like I know nothing basically is how I go into all of these. And it's, I know just enough to like ask questions that can lead the conversation down, down a cool path. And, but yeah, it's, it's been, it's been a really cool opportunity. Like for example, if I had said to you, well, maybe you would have been okay with this, but other people that I've had on like, Hey, can I talk to you about your life for an hour and a half? Like verse, Hey, do you want to come on the podcast? It was like, it's a little bit different. So it's allowed me the opportunity to to do that and listen. So that's, I don't know. It's a really cool thing as well. Yeah. I'm sure. It, I mean, it's great that you're doing this and I'm sure it's a lot of fun too, which is it's a, it's not a common thing for people to be doing stuff that they actually like to do too. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I figured when COVID started and we we're all stuck inside, I was like, well, I could be doing this or I could be playing video games. So I might as well learn something about the world while I'm here. Yeah. Um, I didn't want to, cause I know myself and I know that I would have gone down that rabbit hole of just doing nothing productive. And then that would have been a whole, a whole different issue. But um but so, okay. So you mentioned you were a Russian interpreter, uh, I think in the air force, right? I was. Uh, and so how did you get into that? Because I don't think anyone when they're little is like, you know what, dad, I want to be a Russian interpreter. They are like, I want to fly fighter jets or something else. Yeah. But you ended up there. How did that happen? Yeah. So, uh, like a lot of my career, uh, moves, it wasn't planned. I, I was just, at the right place at the right time. I've been very lucky throughout all my career. So when I got out of high school, um, uh, I uh, couldn't afford college. And so I enlisted in the Air Force um, and was lucky enough to get a job where I was fixing parts on jet aircraft, which was was a really cool job uh, and stationed in, in the United Kingdom, having a lot of fun, uh, just gotten married. And then the Air Force put out this call um, because they were, uh, they didn't want to give up their um, uh, Russian interpreter linguists that do that SIGINT mission I was talking about earlier. About what time frame is this, if you can say that? Yeah, this was in 1990. So right at the very end of the Cold War. Okay. Yep. Yep. Um, so they put out this call and said, hey, does anybody want to learn Russian and be an interpreter? And, and um, my, part of my family lineage is Russian. So there was a little bit of an emotional hook immediately. Sure. And, and uh, there's also like you, you know, I always am curious about new things. And I thought, well, that sounds really interesting and fun. And so, you know, I took this test they call the defense language aptitude battery, which is a, it's a pretty interesting test. It's a bunch of grunts and groans that they assign vocabulary rules to. And then um, they, they run you through some statements using those grunts and groans to see how well you can learn a language. And I did well enough that they said, you're in if you want it. Um, and I wanted it. So the Air Force sent me out to Monterey, California, to the Defense Language Institute for uh, almost two years to learn Russian. Um, the job was with, uh, so it wasn't an Air Force organization. It was an agency at the time called the On-Site Inspection Agency. And the mission of the agency was to run all of our arms control agreements with, at the beginning, the Soviet Union. Um, and then while I was going through training, we had the fall of the Soviet Union. So mm-hmm. it was with Russia after that. Um, and so I uh, graduated in uh, 92 and um, came to D.C. to work as a Russian interpreter and chemical weapons inspector 
uh, implementing a couple of agreements that uh, Russia and the U.S. had signed to eliminate chemical chemical weapons. Mm. So, in that time frame, when when the Cold War ends, is there a shift in the mindset of the the military as a whole from the standpoint of like Russia at that point? if I remember my history correctly, was kind of in chaos at that point. Different people were running like oil oil stuff and then the mafia was running stuff. And like, so was there a shift like as you were going through that training like that you noticed or was it kind of just day to day for you? So not during the training because um, uh, we were, although our instructors were all Russian, they were all immigrants mm-hmm. and had been here for a while. But once I got into the job, um, and we started doing inspections. So uh, we would do inspections. And then I would also go over to Moscow for about six weeks, every couple of months uh, to work in an office where we were helping them build a destruction support facility uh, to eliminate all their chemical weapons. So we dealt with a lot of military and former military in, in those activities. And it was a mix. I, I mean, we had, I ran into guys who, uh, um, you know, during uh, the inspections or in our meetings, they would grab me in a break and and say, hey, you know, I'm, I'm so excited that we're finally, you know, moving towards democracy. And a couple people, you know, just to show how excited they were about uh, their newfound freedoms would like one guy would pull out a necklace that he had a cross on. And he said, I've been wearing this my entire life, but I could never show anybody because I would have been killed because religion isn't uh, allowed under communism. And he said, I'm so happy I can wear this openly now, right? And then at, on the other side, you know, we'd go through inspections with these crusty old Russian colonels that really still wanted it to be Soviet and were just kind of grumpy and cranky and mad at us that, you know, they thought we were the reason the Soviet Union fell. And um they were, it was always an interesting conversation with them because they weren't, they weren't uh, unprofessional, but um, you could tell they were resentful of the situation their country was in. That's very interesting. And I, that is not even what I meant by the question, but it's interesting that you went there because that's something as well that is hard to consider from like, from my point, as I was born after the Soviet Union fell and the only story that I know firsthand was <laughs> my my mom. So my granddad decided that it would be a good idea to send my mom there when she was in college on like a field trip or something. And nobody, I, I like, when they tell the story now, it's like, granddad, why did you think that was a good idea? And he was like, I don't know. I was like, okay, well, that, that seems like fun. Um, but the, the, the story that she brought back with her was when we were kids, we always used to tear our napkins in half because when she was there, she was like, they didn't have anything and they did that. And I just carried the habit with me, but that's interesting that you talk about it because you never hear like what the Russian people like thought about it afterwards. So how was it? was it limited to kind of those stories that you mentioned or were, are there others or like, what was the general feeling that you got when you would go visit? Yeah. I mean, that, those were, visit, they, but... yeah, it was official visits. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, those were most of my interactions were with those kinds of people because we were working all the time. So there wasn't a lot of free time to go around, but you know, you read in the news all the time about the, uh, Russian entrepreneurs, uh, you know, because of the opening things up and the economic freedom and establishing stores. And, um, you know, it was, that was around the rise of the, you know, initially computers and the start of the internet. So there's a whole industry in that field. And um, a lot of people, a lot of Western businesses coming in then after that um, and establishing uh, presence in, in Russia. Um, and I think overall, you know, most people thought it was a good thing, but uh, there were, you know, stories about people who, who um, thought it was uh, a negative thing because of the the rest, the other Soviet republics becoming their own countries now, right? So I think it's hard to quantify, you know, sort of a percentage-wise how many thought it was positive and how many uh, didn't like it, but. You know, you've seen 
again, not referring directly to current events, but that situation hasn't changed, right? There are people who still want things to be the way it used to be and others who who were happy with the breakup. Yeah, it's very interesting because that generation of people who want things to stay, you would think are going to be at the point where they're kind of, well, moving on with life, I guess you could say is the nice way to put it. And then at that point, I think it'll be very interesting to see kind of what happens. I, because it's always been russia and the soviet union has always been like a a mystery right and school it was always like they were not really like it was like european history but it was western europe and then it was like all right world war one they're kind of involved then communist revolution then cold war and that was like kind of what you got so it was always, always like a mystery because there wasn't a lot of stuff coming out of russia from the standpoint of like writings or other stuff because it was closed off in that way yeah I, I'd say, you know, touching on Russian history a little bit, right? So they're a very um, proud people, very patriotic, right? Um, they, they love their history. They're very strong people uh, because they've had to suffer so much throughout the course of their history in general. Um, but what I thought, you know, one thing I learned uh, in my last job, I was stationed in London for a couple of years. And uh, it's always funny because I had grown up thinking, you know, America was one of the youngest countries in the world. And a lot of European nations would make fun of us for being kind of the, the kids historically. But when, when you actually take a look at some things, uh, a lot of European countries, uh, including Russia and at the time the Soviet Union, were younger than us. It's just they yeah. had a longer, longer history that's that's accounted for because of the concentration of people within the European continent. But even that, um, you know, things are the people who call themselves Russian. If you pull that thread all the way back, are really kind of Nordic and Turkic and Mongol, and uh, you know, even Pict and Celts moving from Eastern Europe in that direction, and some of them went to. I, you know, Ireland and Scotland. So um, what is Russian? Yeah, it's, re it's really weird is when you when you really go back throughout, like, when you get to basically the fall of Rome, all that that whole history is so odd from the standpoint of there's all these like tribes, I guess, and then there's kind of arbitrary borders that were drawn in more in like more colonial times, but they don't really fit where all the tribes were. And so you get like, these weird divisions in, in, in places and like, for example, um, like Catalonia and, and Spain and like all these things that are like, they're, it's very odd. It's like, like to really, you could go down a rabbit hole. So many of those things. Yeah. It's so one of the things our agency does in addition to what I mentioned earlier is something called human geography. Uh, I'm not sure if you've heard it or if you're a mm -hmm. listener. Yeah, took, a, yeah. took a couple of classes yeah. in it. Yeah, I think it's uh, it's pretty fascinating because, uh, like you said, if you look at history, the borders that we have today don't necessarily reflect uh, where the lines actually exist from a, a uh, ethnicity perspective, a cultural perspective, a language perspective. That's what I thought was kind of cool about um, the Kenyan ambassador to the United Nations comments the other day about, you know, where borders are based on history versus moving forward with the borders that you have. Yeah. <sighs> Strange world. All right. So you go through school, you're doing or language school, you're looking at chemical weapons and, and all this wild stuff. And as you're going through that, is that kind of, did the job shift at all over to the, I guess, but 12 years you were in the Air Force? Is that, am I doing the math right? 12, 14 years, something like that? Um, yeah, 20 total. So uh, at, when I started learning Russian, I had been in for five years. Ah, gotcha. When I finished that job, I finished in 96. So I had been in for almost 11 years. So when, so you go through your Russian interpreter and then in 96, what happened? Because you said you started at NGA in 02, right? So what happens, like, how does that transition work? Yeah, so I stayed in the Air Force uh, for a total of 20. So what happened in 96 is um, I, had got, I had gotten my degree uh, while I was working as an interpreter. And so I applied to become an officer in the Air Force. And so they, they accepted me to become an intel officer. 
Um, and so I did Intel most of the rest of my career, um, working at Andrews Air Force Base, you know, providing Intel to Air Force One and some of the other pilot, um, um, presidential pilot office programs over there. Uh, while I was there, deployed, uh, deployed as a, a loose term, uh, deployed yeah. to England during Allied Force uh, to help work some targeting programs. And then uh, our, my family and I moved to Guam for two years um, in about 2000. And uh, I worked there not doing Intel. I was, um, I ran a protocol office and I was a general's aide for a year. And, and so it was a really a different kind of job, but um, and, and it was funny because everybody told me it was a terrible career decision to go take a protocol office because you're an Intel guy and it's the farthest thing from it. Um, I went for personal reasons because of some family things that had happened, but it was a really great decision because um, when you're a protocol officer on an Air Force base, uh, you, learn, you have to engage with every organization on the base. So that's the point, I think, in my career that took me from what I was describing earlier, right? Head down, knowing my job, knowing what I'm doing and not worrying about the big picture because somebody up here is doing that. When I had to work protocol, I had to know everything, right? And and pull my head up and then uh, did a decent enough job at that, that job that the two-star general who was in charge of the whole region said, hey, why don't you come be my aide for a year, which uh, then getting to work with him and seeing how he looked at things and how he made decisions and, you know, the information he gathered and, you know, how he ran things. And he was a great guy and really good at what he did, uh, allowed me to get an even more strategic perspective. And then from there, you know, just real quickly, cause it's kind of a cool story. Um, yeah, go for it. So uh, um, I was sitting uh, in my office uh, as the, the general's aide, kind of looking over the runway, doing my day-to-day -day thing. And I got a phone call out of the blue from this guy who I'd gone to officer training school with, who we had become friends in officer training school uh, and, you know, really good friends. And he called me and he said, hey, Gary, uh, I know you're getting ready to leave this summer. I have a job for you. And his name was Rashid. And I said, oh, great, Rashid. What's the job? And he goes, I can't tell you. And I was like, you can't tell me. He goes, nope, can't tell you. And I said, okay, I'll take the job because we had developed that kind of close bond that I trusted him and knew what the job was. And it, it ended up being going to work for NGA. Just at the time, it was, you know, it was, I was not in a classified space. It was a very classified job. So he couldn't mm -hmm. tell me anything about it. But, you know, I tell that story to talk about the importance of relationships and trusting people and taking a chance on people you trust. So. Yeah, that's that's really cool. I don't uh, I don't know if I'd have done that to be honest. But <laughs> uh, real quick, for the what what exactly is a protocol officer? So um, they're the folks who um, uh, take when DVs distinguished visitors come to visit. They're the folks who take care of putting everything together and all the details and tours and meetings and things like that. So in my case, because I was in Guam. You know, they called it essentially the the um, the shell station in the Pacific. So it's kind of like right in the middle of a whole bunch of stuff. So a bunch of people who are flying to Japan or India or Hawaii or whatever, you got to stop there to get gas. And so we'd always have generals or senators. You know, in one case I had um, on 9-11, President Clinton came through Guam. Um, so at the time, uh, Bush was president, but President Clinton was in Australia. And because of 9-11, uh, he had a military aircraft was taking him back to the U.S. And he stopped in Guam and had to take care of him and his team and make sure they had everything they needed. It's a very, you know, I call it sort of a wedding planner job. Um, it's it's making, you know, dot and I's and crossing T's and, you know, doing whatever you need to do to make sure that they get what they need so that they can move on to their next thing. Yeah, that makes sense why the other Intel guys said you were crazy. Yeah, it does. It does. <laughs> so was it um weird to be around like these generals and after you took the job was it weird to be around these people that i guess beforehand you wouldn't have really interacted with all that all that much like these generals or president clinton or any of these other people was it like strange to be around them or were they just people at the end of the day or both i guess yeah i think um because of my russian interpreter job i got to interact with a lot of people at that level 
you know, all the way up to the Secretary of Defense interpreting for different things. And so and by that point, I knew they were all just people, but respected the position, right? And mm-hmm. I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't treat them cavalierly, but I also knew I had seen through interaction that they're just like you and me, right? They're human, they're flawed, um, but they're obviously very successful because of where they are. They got there for a reason. So yeah, it didn't, I don't, I wouldn't say it phased me at all. I treated them with respect, but also understood that, you know, they were human beings. Yeah. That's a weird, or not a weird, not necessarily weird, but to respect the position, but understand that the person in the position is human is a kind of very nuanced distinction that I don't, like when I've met people, I've tried to to remember that sort of nuance within it because I don't want to be weird. And like, I feel like they also don't want the person that they're talking to, to be weird. Cause that's not yeah. helpful really to anyone. Um, but at the same time, for some people, you can't help, but kind of be like, Whoa, it's that guy. Yeah. Or girl. Woman. And they, they'll all come at it differently too. Right. But like going back to that humility discussion, some of them don't have any humility and some of them have tons of humility. So, you know, you'll know when you start interacting with them, uh, I think as long as you always respect the position, mm-hmm. um, uh, you'll know how to interact with them and, and you'll see after time whether you respect the person or not, but that shouldn't change how you interact with them from a respecting the position perspective. Yeah, absolutely. Has that been, um, I obviously don't throw anyone under the bus, but when with your job at NGA, have you had that sort of... Um, this person is not my favorite, but their position is of such importance that like, how do you deal with that when, when you're briefing? Because I can picture if like you're having a bad day and you don't really want to see it, like insert whoever person here, just like any work relationship. But when it's somebody who's like important, is that difficult to, to kind of go about doing, or do you have sort of method methods and sources that you use to, oh geez, methods and sources that you use to kind of get around that? Yeah, I can't divulge my sources and methods here. <laughs> uh, no, there's, so there's two things I do. Number one is um, I always try to kill them with kindness, right? So if the mm-hmm. person's a jerk, if the person's a jerk, I never reciprocate. I always try to be super nice, overly communicative, uh, you know, and treat them like, um, I won't say my best friend, but treat them well. And, and eventually uh, they all break down, right? And, and end up becoming a nicer person. Mm-hmm. And it, it always works, I think, to my advantage. The other thing is, uh, and, and this is a little bit, um, maybe a little bit, um, well, it's, it's, it's arrogance bad, balanced with humility, right? When I, when I was, uh, when I joined the Air Force, um, I didn't expect uh, to stay in more than four years um, and didn't expect to become an officer, didn't expect to become a senior executive in the government. You know, all of my expectations were kind of peaked when I became a Russian interpreter. I thought that was the coolest thing ever. And everything since then has been like gravy. So I, I almost approached those interactions as what have I got to lose, right? To be honest and just be myself and and not worry about you know, if I, if I have to tell this person that they're being a jerk, I'll tell them they're being a jerk in an, in a professional and polite way, right? Or if I tell them I think they're wrong or I disagree with them, I've never, ever hesitated to do that. And just like I've never hesitated to, you know, when I've had um, to deliver a, a, a message that the workforce isn't happy about, um, or I know they're not going to be happy about, I don't run away from that. I, I, I'll just stand up and say, hey, here's the bottom line. Here are the facts. Um, and I, I think you deserve to know what's going on. So that's that's allowed me a lot of freedom in the last you know, decade or two in my career, uh, to be really frank and honest, and all with the objective of doing what's best for the organization and the people I work with. Yeah, I'm asking those sorts of things out of just curiosity from for myself for how to go through my own career and life and in that sort of situation because everybody runs into those at some point in their lives. And so, um, and and like you said, to be frank and honest, like to deliver a message that people might not want to hear, if you've got that humility or that quality that people know that you're being genuine, it's often it's like that built up trust type thing where 
they might they're not going to shoot the messenger at that point which is also very important for maintaining like the transparency and the level of trust that your people have in you which is like goes a long way for sure yeah i i I like to think so and i try to uh, be as transparent and authentic as possible with folks um and even when it's gone wrong in in the end it's gone right because most people appreciate that transparency and authenticity over time. Yeah. We've been talking for almost like more than an hour already. So I got, I got one more question for you. Um, And that is if you had to give one piece of advice for people, my age, college age about uh, starting in their career and kind of moving forward, what, what would that, what would that be? Um, I would say take chances. So going back to my story about my friend and I got a job, mm-hmm. right? Take take some chances and and see, you know, do some things that you wouldn't have expected yourself to do, and um, you know, pursue things that that aren't um, within the normal uh, your normal thought process, and see what happens. You heard it here first. Take chances. Take smart chances. Don't do dumb things, people. Yeah. Uh, I really appreciate having you on. I learned a ton. Um, I could talk to you for probably ask you a gazillion questions for forever, but for maybe not the internet. <laughs> that sounds good. Um, any last nickels? No, thanks for having me on, Eric. Thanks for doing this. I think it's a good service for folks, and I appreciate you having me on. And um, you know, Wish you luck going forward with the rest of it. Really appreciate it. Likewise. With that, guys, we will see you guys next time. Peace.